becoming the school slut in the seventh grade, and being gay when your dad is a pastor. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are taking a deep dive into one of the most damaging repercussions that comes from growing up in a dysfunctional family, shame. But not just any kind of shame, the kind of shame you feel when you become the school slut in the seventh grade. Or the kind of shame you feel when you're gay and your dad is the pastor of an evangelical mega church. This is what we call toxic shame. And yes, you will be hearing both of those stories today. So before we dive into toxic shame, let's talk about regular old shame, the human emotion of shame which is a painful feeling that arises when we have the awareness that we've done something dishonorable or improper. And while no one wants to feel shame, obviously, it is unfortunately a fundamental part of the human experience. And it's actually healthy to experience from time to time. Why do I say that? Well, first off, it lets us know that we aren't a sociopath as sociopaths typically don't experience shame. So yay there. But more importantly, shame often serves as the catalyst to positive change in our lives. You see, shame is the red flag to self that we have acted out of alignment in a moral sense, that we have acted in a way that is not aligned with our integrity. Therefore, it reminds us of our essential limitations as humans, that we are not perfect, that we will make mistakes, and thus it presents us with an opportunity to grow and become better versions of ourselves. However, this ain't the case with toxic shame. You see, toxic shame is internalized shame, and when an emotion is internalized, It no longer functions as an emotion and it becomes one's identity. So once shame is internalized, it no longer is an emotion for that person. It is no longer an emotion that signals our essential limitations. It becomes a state of being, a core identity. And this is the core identity of an adult child. Our childhood experiences may vary, but what lies underneath is this all-pervasive sense, most often unconscious, that we are inherently flawed, that we are unlovable, that we are unworthy of connection. And having these sort of beliefs definitely do not serve as the catalyst to positive change. In fact, they just cause us to act and think in ways that just further intensify our shame. So now I'm going to tell you about when shame became my identity, which was in middle school. Raise your hand if you look back on middle school fondly. I obviously can't see you, but I'm guessing that not many of you have your hands raised. Middle schools for most, I think, are not our golden days, especially for girls. 
For me, that would be an understatement. Middle school fucking sucked. Like I said in the prior episode, by the time I got to middle school, I was sleeping in my own bed again and I could successfully attend a sleepover. But I began to act out in other ways that fulfilled this underlying belief that there was something inherently wrong with me. And it would be a particular incident in the seventh grade that would cause me to fully internalize shame as my identity. It was a Friday night. It was actually the first night of Christmas break. And me and my friend, we'll call her Sally, we get invited to a high school party via AIM. I think that my screen name at the time was Peach Seven Girl because my favorite fruit was peach and my favorite number was seven and I was a girl. Super cool. Um, So to provide a little context... You know, I wouldn't say that Sally and I were the bad girls, but we were the more mature girls in our grade. You know, the first to get our periods, the first to kiss a boy, the first to get drunk, the first to smoke a cigarette, the girls who were scantily dressed at dances. Our parents would drop us off at the dance. We'd be wearing polos and jeans. And as soon as we got inside, we would strip down to the clothes that we had hidden underneath which were clothes that we had bought from a store at the mall called Bang Bang. I'm sure you can imagine what these outfits looked like. And sometimes even I would um, I would stuff my bra with socks. Um, I remember this one time, and I can't believe I'm going to share this story publicly, but <laughs> so there was one time I'm at the dance, you know, my bra is stuffed with a few pairs of socks and I'm grinding with this guy. I think it was probably to what's your fantasy by ludicrous and we're grinding. And then all of a sudden his hands slide up from my waist and go on top of my boobs and we're grinding and he is going to second base over my clothes. And all I remember thinking was, God, I really hope that he doesn't have a lot of experience going to second base so that he doesn't realize that he's actually squeezing socks right now and not actual boobs. (laughs) So back to that night. So we were spending the night at Sally's that night because we knew we could sneak out of her house. We had done it before. So as soon as we saw the light go off in her parents' room, we are out the dining room window with a plastic bag in tow with Smirnoff ice bottles that I'd stolen from the house that I had babysat at earlier that evening. Yes, I was a great babysitter. The party was about a 15-minute walk away. Um, It was at this girl's house who she actually lived at a clergy house at a Methodist church. Her dad wasn't the rector. um, They were just renting it. So as fate would have it, as soon as we arrive, we find out that the party had already been busted by the cops. And the only people left were the girls whose house it was and five ninth graders, five ninth grade boys from our school. And these were not just any boys. These boys we had been obsessed with since the beginning of middle school. 
These were the popular eighth grade boys when we were in the sixth grade. And my friends and I, we each had our own designated boy and we granted them a nickname. I really wish I could remember them all. I want to say that my guy, who was rather pale, I think his nickname was Ghost. Um, But what I do remember is that somehow these guys found out about our nicknames. And so they decided to return the favor with mine being awkwardly tall girl. Yes, awkwardly tall girl. Just what every middle school girl wants to be called by the boys she has a crush on. Thankfully, I don't think it really left a scar. I think it's fucking hilarious today. So feel free to call me awkwardly tall girl if you'd like. So we weren't allowed to go into the house. So we kind of moseyed on over to this stone overpass of the church and we're hanging out. We're drinking our Smirnoff ice bottles. And before I know it, Sally and I are both on our knees and I was giving my first blowjob ever to one of these ninth grade boys and Sally was right next to me doing the same to another one of the boys and the other boys and the girls whose house it was were standing there watching. Now, here's the thing. We were not peer pressured into doing this. Uh, The boys obviously weren't discouraging it. What ninth grade boy would discourage a blowjob? Uh, But this was very much a choice on our part. We wanted to do this. Why? Because we truly thought that it would make us cool. But then the exact opposite thing happened. By the time we got back to school in January, the entire school knew about this. It was a private school that went from kindergarten to 12th grade. So when I say everyone... I mean, everyone in middle school, everyone in high school, everyone in elementary school that had a sibling in middle school and high school, all of their parents, and the teachers. And nobody thought we were cool. They all thought that we were sluts. And Sally and I were harassed on a daily basis. Picture that scene from Game of Thrones where... Cersei is walking down that cobblestone fucking path and everyone is like, shame, shame, shame. That was my life on a daily basis for the rest of the school year. And I actually had it a lot worse than Sally because Sally had a brother in the 10th grade and eventually he kind of stepped in and defended her. So people laid off, but not me. I didn't have any older siblings and the harassment continued and I became the girl that no one wanted to be friends with. I became the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with. I had already lost my other best friend at the beginning of the year after my mom caught us drinking together and even Sally didn't want to be associated with me anymore. And it was then that shame became my identity. That was when I no longer felt shame. And I believed I was shame. (sighs) And this belief that I was unworthy of connection was really, really ingrained in me subconsciously. 
So there is a book called Healing the Shame That Binds Us. It's by John Bradshaw. It's like one of the most well-known and acknowledged books on shame. And he explains that the moment shame is internalized is the moment that our true selves go into hiding and a false self is created. And this false self can go one of two ways. The first is shameful acting out or an attempt to be less than human. This is when the child leans into this belief that they are inherently flawed and acts accordingly. The other option is shameless acting in, an attempt to be more than human when the child tries to be perfect in order to cover up their feelings of being flawed. So what did my seventh grade self do in response to essentially becoming the friendless school slut overnight? Well, I took the less than human route. I took the shameful acting out route. I started smoking pot. I started sneaking out of the house at night. Eventually my parents found out and they put a security system um, on the house to keep me in, not to keep people out. I had my first blackout, which would become a regular occurrence for me. I lost my virginity. I let half my class feel me up in the back of a coach bus on a class trip to Gettysburg. Honestly, this is one of the most like shameful memories I have <laughs> that creates a visceral reaction, maybe because I was so flat chested and no, I was not, I didn't have socks stuffed in my bra at this point. Um, my grades plummeted and I was suspended twice, once for forging my mom's signature on a note and the other time for stealing a bowl of tortellini from the cafeteria. And at the end of the school year, I was informed that it would be best if I did not return the following year to that school. And I started eighth grade the next year at public school where thankfully my slut reputation didn't follow me. However, it would only take a few months before I would earn the nickname Rehab Girl, which you'll get to hear about next week and all about the hot mess express I was and why the entire world should be grateful that Andrea is sober. But what I want to talk about is, you know, just how I was oblivious to the true impact my childhood had on me. The same goes for this situation. I did not realize the long-term ramifications this experience had on me. What I now know is that toxic shame permeated from my core for the next 15 years. And I carried this experience and the belief that I was unworthy of connection into various situations and various relationships, which would just essentially manifest it into my reality, which would just reaffirm this belief and intensify the toxic shame within. And this is what we call a shame spiral. The initial shaming incident is relived internally over and over causing our sense of shame to deepen and keeps us stuck in destructive thought and behavior patterns. And in my case, and I think for many others, I didn't have a fucking clue that this was going on. But what I want to convey is that it is possible to 
break free of the chains of toxic shame. You know, I've spent the past several years working on my toxic shame and other issues with my therapist. And it was about a year ago before all this COVID madness. I, I, I lived in San Francisco and I went to a sports bar. It was the Philly, the Philadelphia Eagles sports bar where everyone from Philly goes to watch the game. And I was going to meet a friend there. And I walked into the bar and I sat down and I realized that sitting at the table next to me was seven people that were in my grade at the seventh grade at that school. People who I had, I don't think I had seen since that last day of seventh grade when I was asked to not return. And you know, it was like I had very nice conversations with them and it was actually really nice to see them and just kind of talked about what we were up to and how we ended up in San Francisco and all that stuff. And it wasn't until I was in the lift on my way home from the sports bar that I realized that not once had the blowjob incident come to mind while I was talking to them. And that was just such a really amazing experience to just realize that that experience didn't have the power over me that it once did. And that this belief that I'm the girl that no one wants to be friends with, that I'm the seventh grade slut, all that stuff, it not once came to mind. It was no longer a part of my identity. So I hope you all can take that as hope that if you are suffering from toxic shame, that it is possible to, to overcome it. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. So that's enough out of me for now. It is now time to talk to my friend Emily, who will be telling us about her experience with toxic shame. And I just want to say that the audio at certain points is not the best. You may hear her newborn crying in the background. Regardless, it is still a juicy, interesting, and fabulous conversation. So here we go. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce my dear, dear friend, Emily, who we actually first met at um, at an AA meeting. It's called once a drunk whore. (laughs) And I remember it was actually right when I was hitting, um, it was right after Brian number one. So my first little bottom at seven years. And I remember I spoke 
and I can't remember what you, so there's a portion where people can ask questions. And I remember that you asked me some, it was, you didn't mean to be rude or anything, but it was a snarky question. I remember thinking, I really like this girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you maybe came up to me at the end I and said, I think was. you came up to Man. me afterwards and were like, I hope that didn't come across as like rude. And then since then I've gotten, we've had snarky questions going back and forth and it will happen in infinity. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And now you're a mom. That was so that was actually right when you first started dating your wife. And now here you are. You're a new mm-hmm. mama. Yeah. So that was probably maybe like five years ago. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, life has changed drastically since then. So I thought what we could do, similar to the meeting that you know we we met at where somebody talks, um, and you don't have to talk for 10 minutes straight, but Um, somebody picks a relationship of their choice. And so I thought that you could share a little bit about your relationship with, with shame, um, in particular in, in your upbringing in home, you know, with being gay, growing up in such a religious, um, household, if you, what are your thoughts on there, wherever you want to go, go. Well, it's been interesting. I, first of all, um, I came out around the same time I got sober and, um, which was at what age? That was around, that was when I was 30. Wow. It was really, really tough. I'd say two years. I was really depressed. I was really confused. I was really, I was just coming out of the cloud, you know? And I, in my mind, I thought that being attracted to women and, you know, drinking and using in excess fell into the same bucket. I thought they were both things that I wouldn't allow myself to do before and could control but then let myself do like, let myself kind of slip and fall into, you know, as my willpower decreased. And so when I um, started the process of unraveling everything, it just, it was just so messy. And, um, and so, you know, I had to focus on getting sober first, you know, you take them as they're killing you is what my sponsor used to say. So I had to stop the drugs, which I got to a point where I was using whatever, anything that, you know, was put in front of me basically, Mm -hmm. but I did have a pretty extensive Coke habit for a while, but I identified just as an alcoholic because the drinking was where it started and where it ended. But once I took all of that away, for instance, I, I just had to stop going to church and I really haven't, I haven't had the desire to go back. And when I even walk into a church, for a wedding even, or when I go home to visit my, my family, my, my dad is a pastor of an evangelical megachurch in Indiana. So, um, sometimes when we go home, if it's over a weekend, then he's probably preaching and going there. It's, you know, I still get really emotional. Like I'll hear songs that, you know, it's like, I have such mixed emotions. I miss I miss the music sometimes, you know, and I miss the familiar, you know, faces and sounds and, but it was also so damaging to me and really brought me to a really dangerous low point emotionally in my life. I didn't want to live any longer because of the conflicting sides of my life and my, you know, the beliefs that I was brought up to think were the like truth with a capital T but then what I couldn't deny inside of myself, which was that I was definitely attracted to women. I put 
the question of like religion and what, what role, if any, it should play in my life or just spirituality or just addressing basically unpacking what I had been through. I've, I've really put that on the shelf since I got sober. So this is a really interesting time to be talking about this stuff because I haven't even felt like I have the emotional bandwidth to deal with it. Well, two questions. When did you first, you know, when did you first realize that perhaps you were attracted to women? And also two, do you remember learning about homosexuality, like being gay? Like, do you, do you remember when you first kind of learned about that as a kid? Yeah. I mean, I'll take the second part first. So just growing up in Indiana, um, I didn't even know what gay was until later than you would think, probably sometime in like late junior high. Okay. I didn't know there was such a thing as like same-sex attraction or partnership. And um, I remember there was one guy in like the show choir that was my older brother's age that he was gay. And he was probably the first person I'd ever heard of that was gay. And it was just talked about in a very, very negative way within my family. Like um, my parents would kind of make fun of gay people. They would describe I didn't even know there were gay women for a long time, actually. It was like only gay men at first. And they were portrayed by like the people I knew as very manipulative. They would prey on victims that were susceptible to being taken in, you know? So it was like, I thought all gay men were like very, very lost, very evil people. And they would lure in young gay boys or young boys and then, flip them and then bring them into their environment, you know, and cut them off from their family. Yes. Yes. Very calculated and very manipulative. And so that's what I thought gay men were, were just these very evil, very manipulative, dark people. And then once I learned about, oh, there are these like gay women called lesbians. I thought they were just women who were, I mean, I hate to say it, but this is what I was told. Like, they were too fat and too ugly to find a man. And so they just ended up with each other. <laughs> so, and then I, I remember hearing about, um, I had an uncle, not by blood, but he married an aunt of mine who they divorced. And then we found out he was gay and we would make fun of him. And I remember my mom being angry with her sister for even talking to him, having any kind of relationship with him. And so um, it was just obviously my perception and the perception of everyone around me basically was that it was a really, really horrible thing. These were people who were, who were lost and were giving into like sexual sin, which is like the worst kind in the world. It's very like shameful. It was almost worse because they were not, they call it like, living in sin. It's not like you just, you rob a bank and then you're done. Like, you you know, you've committed the sin. It's like you wake up every day, like with being gay. And so it's like a constant, like part of your identity. And it's a choice that you're turning away from God is what they would, you know, the phrase they would use. And so, so that was what I grew up with. And then the other interesting kind of side to it is that all the while, an aunt that I had 
my dad's younger sister, who I was very close to, was in the closet because our family, I mean, I hear different reasons. Anyways, I didn't know she was gay. She didn't tell me until I came out to her. Did your dad know? Yeah. And according to my aunt, he said, he and my mom said, it's none of their business. Like the kids shouldn't know. When I was in high school, when I was in college, when I was in my 20s, they still didn't think I should know, (laughs) apparently. Like, I couldn't handle it or something. Did they still have a relationship with her? They do. They do. And it's like... Like they did still. Uh It's it's a healing process. She moved away and fortunately kind of got out of like the conservative bubble of Indiana. And she lives in Washington State now and is able to like live her like full life there in a community where she's loved and accepted. I don't know how she survived like the way that she did, like in in the closet for decades. So anyways, that was kind of the background of what I thought about, was told to think about anyone who was gay and the gay community. And then um, it was in my late twenties when I started noticing It was so weird. Like I didn't even, it was, there was absolutely nothing conscious about it. I was drawn to certain like TV shows and certain people. Like I was, I was living in LA at the time and working as a young attorney. And um, like there was a, there was a lesbian that I worked with and my trainer was, he was gay. And so I just, I think what was also happening is that as it happens in many people's lives, your your views change once it becomes personal. So once you know someone and you're like, hey, they're not some disgusting, you know, sex craving, you know, manipulative person. They're they're a normal person, you know, like there's nothing nothing different about them. And in fact they might have more empathy and they might be more kind because of the the difficulty they've had in being accepted themselves. So what I started noticing also at the same time is that I just was not having any luck with guys. I mean, I, I would like date and I would hook up, you know, I was like, I was in LA at the time. And can you hear Levi? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good soundtrack or not, but yeah. um, so I just, I mean, the longest that I dated anyone before that time was like, I dated a guy for like four months. And I just, it didn't matter that much. I just wasn't, I wasn't drawn to them. And I had, I had guys tell me like, Hey, it it just seems like you don't need me. Like, you know, like it's something wasn't clicking, but it was also at the same time I was, I was starting to drink and use more. And so things are just getting really blurry and really messy too. So long story short, I was also working at a really intense law firm down there. And I had this long trial and it got really messy because I ended up hooking up with the trial partner and I, it was so messy, but it ended up, it ended up, it was was a guy, right? Guy. And, um, and I was just living this very stringent life. I was very regimented in what I ate and like working out twice a day. And I worked, you know, sometimes 70, 80 hours a week at a law firm and, um, was just like, just trying so hard to do everything right. And I got to the end of this trial that was just such a mess, but it was like, we won and it was this big victory. And 
I had kind of reached the pinnacle of what I thought, you know, for my career, like what I was trying to reach, like the goal of like, you know, going to law school, getting licensed, getting a job, getting a better job, being a part of a big, big high profile trial, winning the trial and then walking out. And I, and I was like completely miserable. And so at that point, I kind of just started just like, I was just like, fuck it. I can't try any harder, you know? And so that started this several year, like, I mean, it was, it was basically, I was like on a drinking and using binge. Like I just, I started, that's when I started using a lot. I started partying a lot. Um, I started hooking up a lot. And it was so weird because I honestly, it wasn't a conscious decision, you know, I think I just reached a threshold of like, I think I, I just lost hope in like what I, whatever I was doing wasn't working. And so it was just like, okay, you know, here goes. And so that's when the, well, I started allowing myself to hook up with girls too. So had you prior to that, do you remember like as a kid or like a teenager at all? Did you feel shame prior to that? It's funny. Like my first experience with shame that I can remember actually was when I actually was just like, I had a neighbor that I played with and um, I remember we would play house and like, we would pretend to be characters in soap operas (laughs) and, and I would always be like the guy character and her mom came in and caught us kissing Uh and she's obviously a girl and I was not allowed to play with her anymore. And I remember my mom's, stopped watching soap operas because she was like, my daughter is picking this stuff up and, and acting out on it. So it's kind of funny. Like I definitely, I like we all do that. We all did that. I know. Right. Like it, it has nothing to do at that age. You're not, you don't have like sexual feelings for, you know, but it was definitely not right. What I did, I got punished for it, but shame other than that, Gosh, I definitely was a perfectionist. I didn't feel shame from my parents, but I also didn't ever really let them in too much to allow. I I probably held in, I felt ashamed and was very, very hard on myself. So anything that I was doing that wasn't kind of within the construct, like the, the church laid out this kind of like architecture or like this framework for how a life should be lived. And so there is a right way to live and there's a wrong way to live. You know, like you don't have sex before marriage. You follow the 10 commandments. There were definite rights and wrongs. It was very black and white. And so I was trying to figure out how to, and and as you get older, it just becomes harder and harder to live within that construct and be like a 20 year old, you know, living as a normal young adult and trying to maintain those rules. And so that was part of why looking back, I think that's part of why I started drinking pretty heavily because what I was aspiring to be, what I thought was like the way I should live my life because of what I was taught was getting further and further away from what my life was looking like. Mm -hmm. So what did coming out look like with your parents? Oh my God. It was, it sucked. It was really hard. Um, I actually, it was, it happened on a relapse and it was really, it was interesting. So I had been, I'd come out to a lot of people in my life. I was living in San Francisco at the time and I'd had, I'd actually had a girlfriend for about a year, but my parents still didn't know 
they just thought I had the friend that I mentioned every once in a while, but she actually had, she lived with me, like <laughs> we lived together. So, so I actually had, I had a deposition by chance in Indiana, like half an hour from where my parents lived. Wow. Never happens. So, cause my cases are usually in California. So I had a witness I had to depose in like Plainfield, Indiana, which is so weird. And so, um, I, you know, flew, flew back there and, um, this was early in my sobriety and was, I was about a year into my sobriety. And by the way, I did not want to be, I was like, I was not happy to be in AA. I was not happy to get sober at that point. I was just, I just didn't know where else to go. And did they know that they knew that you were in AA and that you were an alcoholic? I think they did. I don't think I really, really explained it to them because they didn't really see my drinking and using. I was really good at, you know, not showing it to them. Like when my Coke habit got pretty active, I remember coming home one Christmas and just being like, just looking like complete shit and like being really skinny and I was losing hair and, and they were like, wow, you look great. You're so thin. (laughs) They didn't, I mean, they would have never guessed though. I mean, that's so outside of anything they would have thought I would be into, but anyway, so I went home and my dad was there and my mom was with my sister who was having her first child, actually the first grandkid. And, um, I relapsed on the plane and I went home and then I started sneaking alcohol from my dad, like some whiskey that he had. And I, so I came, when I came out to him, I was actually drunk mm-hmm. and, um, but it, it like, it literally became too painful. Like I couldn't continue to, to lie, you know? And so I came out to him and I asked if he would not tell my mom until I was actually going to fly back out the next weekend to tell her. I wanted to tell her in person. What was his response? You know, it's funny. He, at first he said, I felt different growing up and I don't want you to feel like you're not accepted. And, um, he actually said he thought that he, he, he wasn't totally surprised. Uh-huh. I was surprised by it. Cause I didn't think there was any, I mean, at the time, I don't know if you remember looking at my driver's license, but I didn't look there was nothing about my appearance that would have given anything away. And they didn't know anything about my personal life, really. It um, must've been that kiss in the, you know, when you're imitating. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> when I was four years old, you know, so that was his initial response. But then I went and I, you know, I had to work that day and then I came back and he said, you know, I talked to your mom and she could tell that something was going on. And so I told her, And what I didn't know is that for the next like week, my mom, who was with my sister, who had just given birth, was inconsolable, just like crying, upset, thinking that, you know, I was my soul, my, you know, my salvation had been lost. And that, um, and she was just, I mean, she was just crying. And, and then I, I learned this later that my sister was so angry at me because she blamed me for coming out at that time and then causing her to have to console my mom when she needed help with a newborn. Yeah. So, and then after that, yeah, it was messy. I, it ended up 
like they wanted me eventually they they wanted me to see um a pastor in the church there that he taught that abstinence was the way or not abstinence um no, the I mean, word yeah. celibacy celibacy is is the answer to if you're gay and you want to still have like live a life you know following Jesus and I refused and they they were disgusted with me basically and um after that you know I was working with a sponsor who suggested that I sever ties with them for a while which I think was definitely the right thing to do at that time. And then I got to tell you, Andrea, like slowly over time, like things turned around and like today, I mean, I have an amazing relationship with them and they love Ashley and they, you know, my partner and they have like done a complete 180. And, and the beauty of it is that I, it, it wasn't my responsibility for them to change. I think they just saw that, they were going to lose any relationship with me. Number one, if they maintained their beliefs. And I think, I think our, you know, our, our society and our culture, things have changed in the last 10 years too. So that has been helpful. I came out at the right time. Yeah. But it was very, very hard for several years. It was very awkward. And I didn't, I still didn't want to be gay too. Like, you know, like for myself, like, I didn't want to have to deal with it. And like, you know, the other side of it too, is that like growing up, like we didn't have, we didn't talk about this kind of stuff. You know, we just, we didn't talk about feelings. We didn't talk about things that people didn't want to hear. You know, it was very, um, very surface when it came to those kinds of topics. Mm -hmm. So you know, in closing and kind of wrap this up, do you have any words of advice or any sort of message to those who, you know, might be in a similar situation to, to where you were? Oh gosh. Everyone has such a different journey. I guess just try to be gentle with yourself and try to, um, yeah, try to, don't, don't rush things. Don't try to figure it all out at once. Like the stuff I'm still 10 years later trying to unpack everything. And also um, you have to also not place a lot too sizable of blame on the people who brought you up. They were just taught those things too. And just know that like higher power is so big and reveals itself in many different ways to different people. However, their heart accepts it and, and channels spirituality. So, you know, my parents can have a higher power that looks very different than my higher power and neither of us is wrong. You know, in fact, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of interesting to learn, you learn more about other people by, by learning how their higher power works in their life. And and just lean on people in your life, you know, like don't try to figure out on your own. Listen to your heart. Just listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. <laughs> I think you're a big inspiration for me. And I just feel really lucky that our paths crossed and that you asked me that snarky message. And yeah, I just think it's it's so amazing. Um, I think a lot of people in your shoes could carry a lot of you know, resentment and pain. And I just think it's really beautiful how you've been able to come to terms with all of this and still very much be rooted in compassion and love. So I just want to echo that to you. 
Wow. Well, thank you. I'm so glad our paths crossed too. And we've been through a lot together and, um, and have learned so much from each other too. And, and I'm so proud of you for, for doing this podcast too. You're reaching a lot of people. So really, really amazed by following your heart in that way. All right. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up today's episode. I hope you were entertained, but more importantly, I hope you were able to take something away that can help you on your own journey. In the show notes, you will find some resources related to toxic shame if you care to dig deeper. You can find me on Instagram at adultchildpod. Hit a girl up. Next week, you are going to learn why the world is a much better place now that I don't drink. It's going to be raw, it's going to be vulnerable, and I'm excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise.